0: Hey y'all, this is May, and I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. I drop a new episode every other week discussing murders from different decades. This season, going over cases from 1990 through 1999. If you'd like to support my show, Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, as it helps more people to find it. I also have a link to where you can buy me a coffee. I really enjoy creating this podcast, and for all who listen, any support is greatly appreciated. Now, on to today's story, which is of a male murderer from 1997. So, grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to Texas, true crime. In 1997, scientists at the Roslyn Institute in Scotland announced that they had successfully cloned a sheep. The sheep, named Dolly, was born in July of the previous year, but the Institute waited to announce the scientific breakthrough until February of 1997, when they could also publish their full research on the process. Dolly the Sheep was the first mammal to have been successfully cloned from an adult cell. She was put down in 2003 after suffering from health complications related to a progressive lung disease. That same year, 39 members of the Heaven's Gate cult committed mass suicide because it coincided with the closest approach of comet Hale-Bopp. Another thing that happened in 1997 was a leader of a Texas prison gang killing a fellow inmate because he was afraid of being snitched on. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. Ricardo Ortiz was arrested on August 6, 1997, in El Paso, Texas, for violating the terms of his parole. When arrested, he told the officers that in exchange for his release, he would give them information about a series of unsolved bank robberies. The officers relayed this information to the FBI, who had been investigating these robberies. However, they already had a suspect named Geraldo Garcia, that they believed to be the main bank robber, as an ex-girlfriend of Garcia's, had told the police that she believed Garcia was involved in some bank robberies and that Garcia and another man had counted money in her living room. Law enforcement agents picked up Garcia and he was identified by bank tellers in a photo lineup. At the time of Ortiz's arrest, the FBI didn't know the identity of the getaway driver, but after hearing that Ortiz had special information about the robberies, they believed he might be the man they were looking for. Unfortunately, by the time the FBI arranged to speak with Ortiz, he had changed his mind and refused to talk. So the FBI decided to go back and interview Garcia, whom was in custody of the El Paso police, hoping he would name Ortiz as the getaway driver. But Garcia, too, refused to talk. So the FBI concocted a plan they hoped would get both men to implicate the other in the bank robberies. They scheduled a second interview with Garcia and arranged for Ortiz to be brought past the interrogation room so that the two men could see each other and make eye contact, hoping that each would assume the other was cooperating with investigators and would then do the same. But this didn't work so the agents then decided to draft a federal arrest warrant for Garcia on bank robbery charges and attached to it a probable cause statement that falsely mentioned Ortiz as one of the individuals implicating him. The agents then showed Ortiz the probable cause statement and warned Ortiz that Garcia would be shown the warrant and would learn that he had snitched, trying to imply that Garcia might then retaliate by implicating Ortiz. Yet, neither man caved, so both were placed in the same tank in the El Paso Detention Center, in a specific unit reserved for members of the prison gang, the Texas Syndicate. And because Ortiz was the highest-ranking member of the Texas Syndicate in that prison tank, he would automatically become a tank boss of any Texas Syndicate section, and he could even have the power to be able to order the death of someone in the tank meaning he exercised de facto authority over the other inmates in the tank, even controlling what inmates requested from the jail commissary and dealt with jailers on behalf of the other inmates. Thirteen days after Ricardo Ortiz was arrested on August 19, 1997, Gerardo Garcia was found dead in his jail cell bed. According to the autopsy, Garcia died of a heroin overdose one so high that it was three times greater than the amount sufficient to cause death. It was noted that Garcia had fresh needle marks and bruises on his left arm, but no needle track marks, which indicated to the medical examiner that Garcia was probably not a heroin addict. So an investigation started into the suspected murder of Garcia. They found a syringe in Garcia's cell and prison witnesses revealed that Ortiz had obtained heroin on the evening before Garcia was found dead. They also saw Ortiz inject Garcia with a syringe that night. Ortiz's cellmate revealed to police that Ortiz told him that Garcia must die for implicating him in the bank robberies that they committed together. One inmate named Mario Hernandez who was in the Texas Syndicate unit, not because he was a member, but only because his cousin was a member. He revealed to police he was in the same section of the jail as Garcia when he died. When Garcia was brought into the tank, Mario saw Ortiz freak. Mario overheard a conversation between Ortiz and Garcia in which Ortiz expressed great concern that Garcia had been caught for some bank robberies. Ortiz and Garcia argued about whether Garcia's capture was the result of being snitched off by Garcia's girlfriend or Ortiz's wife. Mario also overheard more than 10 phone calls made by Ortiz in which he attempted to sell a trailer to get money to purchase heroin. Ortiz remarked that he wanted to bring heroin into the jail and later succeeded in procuring heroin during visiting hours. Mario knew when Ortiz had obtained the heroin because Ortiz and another inmate were high on heroin when they returned from the visitor's booth. As a heroin addict himself, Mario could recognize when other people were high on the drug. On August 17th, Mario witnessed Ortiz and several other inmates call Garcia into one of the individual cells within the tank, cell number 5. Mario explained that he was seated at a table in the tank's day room about 5 feet away from the doorway of that cell and could see inside. He then described seeing the following sequences of events. Garcia was sitting on a bunk bed in cell number 5. Ortiz handed another inmate some heroin. The other inmate dissolved the heroin into water and placed it into a syringe. The syringe containing heroin was handed to Ortiz. Ortiz then injected the heroin into Garcia who did not look like he wanted to be injected. Almost immediately, Garcia began shaking. Ortiz noticed Mario and another inmate witnessed these events and brought them heroin. They injected it themselves while Ortiz told them that Garcia had overdosed, that Garcia was stingy with the heroin and did it all, and that they were not to say anything about the incident. After this investigation, Ortiz was charged with Garcia's murder and was indicted by a grand jury with intentionally causing the death of an individual by injecting Gerardo Garcia with heroin. Then and there in the course of committing and attempting to commit the offense of retaliation against Garcia, Ortiz's charge was also elevated to a capital offense because of the retaliation component. Ortiz was found guilty and sentenced to death on June 18, 1999. He was executed on January 29, 2009. system get like this, to where gangs were kept in segregation from each other, and held so much power in prisons? Well, it all started in 1967, when a 56-year-old lawyer, Frances Gillette, met a 27-year-old inmate, Fred Cruz, and she discovered all the horrible conditions the inmates suffered. Fred Cruz was sent to prison in 1961 at the age of 21 to start a 15-year sentence for robbery. By the time he met Gillette, he had already experienced six years of prison abuse. The worst for him was solitary confinement, which he encountered multiple times. With this punishment, it was rare if you were given a blanket. But no clothes and no mattress were given for the steel bunk you had to lay on, and the toilet was a hole in the floor. The food in solitary was only three slices of bread a day, with a full meal twice a week. After two weeks, an outer door to the cell would be opened, allowing in light from the hallway. This was considered, by prison standards, a release from solitary. At this moment, the warden would come by and assess the sincerity of the inmate's remorse. But if he failed that yes-sir-no-sir encounter, the door would shut again and the days of darkness would continue. During these punishments, one had to keep their mind right or they would slip into a form of insanity. Crews who had a tough upbringing seemed to have the mental capacity to stay sane during these punishments. Cruz grew up on the west side of San Antonio, abandoned by his father at a young age. Members of his family sold drugs, and he eventually joined the gang, the Marisols, and dressed in street Pacheco style, which was a hoot suit with pleated pants and suspenders. When Cruz was 19 and in jail for selling marijuana, his older brother Frank was shot and killed by police in a failed robbery attempt. And although he grew up with a mental toughness, it wasn't until his 15-year robbery sentence that Cruz began to develop an intellectual and a spiritual strength. He began to read difficult texts in philosophy and legal theory. He learned about yoga and Eastern religions and started a correspondence with a Buddhist priest in San Francisco. As he became drawn to the Buddhist idea that peace of mind came not from the external world, but from personal insights into truth and reality. After learning more about these things, it was tough for Cruz to stay silent and not question authority. This obviously wasn't accepted in prison, so he did many stints in solitary confinement. Shelling peanuts, which was known as a lesser punishment at the Ellis prison, was a mind-numbing task that usually left the inmate's fingers blistered and raw. Another punishment inmates could receive was standing on a rail, which meant standing for days at a time on a 6 by 2 plank turned sideways. Cruz soon realized he could learn a lot more about the prison system if he continued to push back against authority. So in just six years, he stacked up a heavy folder of infractions and was given many different types of punishments. After Cruz had been interviewed by clinical psychologist William Gates, the warden was informed that Cruz had leadership potential, and if he wasn't kept in line, he would most certainly be a disturbing influence. In his spare time, Cruz began to study law, and with the influence of drugs being cut off from him, he began reading textbooks, as well as documents like Supreme Court Opinions, the Bill of Rights, and the Constitution. He became obsessed with the ideal of justice. The other prisoners began to know Cruz as someone who understood the legal system and began to call him a writ writer and would seek him out for help with their own appeals and filings. Unfortunately, helping other prisoners with legal issues or keeping legal books or documents in one cell was strictly against the rules and that even talking to another prisoner about the law was a violation and could be punished with weeks in solitary, to which Cruz did several stints for possessing or sharing contraband books and documents. It was around this time that Frances Gillette entered Cruz's life. Gillette was born in Boston. She got married in 1935 and graduated from Columbia Law School in 1937. With not many opportunities for women to have law jobs at that time, other than teaching and typing, Gillette opted to stay home and raise her five children. Unfortunately, one day when her husband was flying a friend's private plane on a trip to Chicago, his flight went down, and he barely survived the crash. He came home permanently changed by the serious head injury. He had sustained and began to drink heavily and was unpredictable and angry. At one point, he became so out of control, he had to be hauled off in a straitjacket. Gillette tried to keep the marriage going, but by 1954, she had filed for divorce and moved with her kids to Washington, D.C., for a job with the American Association of University Women. But every few years, She was moving on to a new job until the summer of 1959, when she became a staff attorney on the New York Law Revision Commission in Ithaca, New York. She held that position for eight years until all her children were out of the house. Though, she always had a desire to be a part of the civil rights movement, and since her children were grown, she decided now was the time to pursue this venture. She applied for and was awarded a Reginald Heber Smith Fellowship. It was the first year of the program, funded by the Federal Office of Economic Opportunity, to attract lawyers from top law schools into the field of poverty law. The honor was mostly reserved for attorneys just starting out in their careers, but Gillette's age made her stand out. After six weeks of intense training, the 50 awarded lawyers, were scattered to poverty law centers across the country, with the guarantee of a modest stipend from the federal government. Gillette asked where her services were needed, and the answer was Texas. So in the late summer of 1967, Gillette moved to Austin, Texas, and a few days after she arrived, the Austin American statesman ran a short profile of Gillette. The article stated she had moved from the East Coast to Texas to help low-income plaintiffs. The writer dubbed her Portia for the Poor after the heroine in Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice. The next week, she received a letter from Fred Cruz, who had read her article and was hoping she could help him with his case. Gillette had received this letter from Cruz. She had yet to pass the Texas bar, and helping a prisoner was outside the bounds of her job description at the Legal Aid and Defender Society of Travis County. Her job was to stick to predicaments in the lives of poor locals, evictions, consumer credit, and unfair debt collection. But Gillette decided she could make the visit to Cruz on her own time and called the prison to schedule a visit. A couple of weeks later, in late October 1967, she drove the 160 miles to meet Cruz. Cruz told her about his desire to appeal his conviction, but Gillette told him that she wasn't a trial attorney and was visiting him on her own time, but that she could advise him on his case and help him type up his briefs, although she couldn't officially represent him. And Due to the length of her fellowship, she only planned to be in Texas until the following June. Their conversation that day eventually turned to other issues. They talked about their families and faith. Gillette told Cruz that one of her daughters was also studying Buddhism. And Gillette learned that Cruz had worked hard educating himself while in jail, and that with the little money his mother sent him, he used it to subscribe to the Supreme Court reports. The first meeting between the two had lasted about an hour. At the time of this first meeting, the director of the entire Texas Department of Corrections, George Beto, happened to also be visiting Ellis' unit on that day, and Gillette was invited to a sit-down visit with both Beto and the Ellis warden, Carl Luther, Bear Tracks, McAdams. McAdams had a reputation for brutality. Bebeto was the former president of Concordia Lutheran College in Austin and an ordained minister. Now, though, he was one of the most powerful men in the state, controlling an empire of 14 separate penal facilities which held more than 12,000 men and women. He portrayed himself as an enlightened leader who cared about his charges. He was able to put on the charm to the press who sang his praises. Some were rightly validated because Beto had overseen the construction of new, more modern prison facilities, and he had opened up vocational learning and educational programs so convicts could now earn their GEDs while in prison. But it was the fact that the prison system didn't need much money that made Beto popular. Since much of the land controlled by the TDC was rich farmland, They were able to produce cotton, sugarcane, corn, and feed crops. The system, at this time, had more than 15,000 beef and dairy cattle, 17,000 hogs, and 112,000 chickens that produced more than 800,000 dozen eggs a year. Convicts not only grew cotton, more than 3,500-pound bales a year, but also processed it through gins and spun it into cloth, which was then sent to the Gore unit in Huntsville, where female inmates sewed it into linens and the white uniforms the prisoners wore. Prisoners were also put to work building the stone walls and fences that confined them. Beto treated his prisoners as slaves, to which the Constitution itself allowed, due to the 13th Amendment, adopted in 1865, which had abolished slavery in the United States, except as a punishment for crime. But Gillette didn't get this charm vibe when she first met with Beto, because he warned her to be wary of Fred Cruz, who was often in trouble for being a writer, who tried to help other prisoners out of their legal cases. Beto said he was concerned Gillette could be taken advantage of by Cruz, who he dubbed a nonconformist. But Gillette left that day knowing she would not give up on helping Cruz. The two began corresponding several times a week. Because the mail was censored, both incoming and outgoing, letters often arrived weeks late and sometimes in batches. Cruz and Gillette took to numbering their correspondence so they would know when letters were missing. Unfortunately, on December 11, 1967, the day before Cruz's 28th birthday, he was back in solitary, this time for sharing his Buddhist religious materials with other inmates. When Cruz was let out, he wrote in his diary that Warden McAdams came to personally warn him that if he kept writing people about matters that didn't pertain to his case, he would be put in solitary, indefinitely. The warden accused him of agitating the other prisoners. Cruz couldn't quite figure out what they were upset about, but it seemed to have something to do with his new correspondent, Gillette. And there were threats to cut off all visits between Cruz and Gillette. But over the first few months of 1968, Gillette and Cruz started to write each other almost daily and she even drove to visit him as often as she could to discuss procedural issues, constitutional matters, and the moral underpinnings of justice. Cruz made sure Gillette knew the good and the bad of who he was. Over the course of their first year of contact, Cruz told Gillette that by the eighth grade, he had stopped attending school, sunk into the local drug economy, and gone from smoking marijuana to shooting heroin. He had been in and out of the juvenile justice system and had been arrested multiple times. He also told her of an incident that scarred him deeply when he was 17. He had been goofing around with an uncle's pistol, showing his best friend how fast he could draw it from his waistband, when the gun accidentally fired and his friend was killed. But no charges were filed, and this was just looked at as just another tragic accident. In the bad part of town. Over that first year, the more Gillette got to know Cruz, the more she became incensed over the treatment Cruz and the other inmates endured. Both his punishment for practicing and sharing his Buddhist faith, the brutality of solitary, and the arbitrary way it was used to punish prisoners for sharing legal advice, seemed a clear violation of his constitutional rights. And around the same time, other prisoners from different states were petitioning federal courts for constitutional protections and winning. But at Ellis Unit and in Texas, those type of changes seemed very far away. Cruz began to talk to other prisoners about Gillette, and she began to meet with two other inmates. A prisoner named Bobby Brown, who had been punished with months of solitary confinement for practicing his faith and another prisoner, named Ronald Novak, who struggled with mental illness and hallucinations, who told Gillette of being repeatedly beaten and starved in solitary. Novak was a troubled man and no model prisoner, because three years earlier, before meeting Gillette, he had disarmed two guards, stolen a truck, and made his way to Houston before being caught, brought back to jail, and thrown into solitary. Based on these interviews, Gillette began to compose a document she called the Ellis Report. From the very first sentences of its 15 typed pages, it was an all-out indictment. The document stated, The prisoners confined in the Texas Department of Corrections, most especially on the Ellis Unit, are deprived of their constitutional rights and subjected to a pattern of repression, harassment, and even torture that is shocking. Through abusive practices based on brutality and dehumanization, the inmates live in constant fear. Gillette documented the stories she had heard from prisoners of being made to stand on a rail, of being hung from bars in straitjackets. She wrote of routine beatings with fists, baseball bats, brass knuckles, and blackjacks. She told of one incident when a prisoner was made to shell peanuts for five days straight until his fingers were so raw that he attempted suicide by slashing his own wrists. She also exposed the role of the building tenders. Building tenders were inmates who were allowed to keep weapons so long as they were willing to tune up troublemakers at the request of prison administrators. They had remarkable power. The use of building tenders was being phased out across America, but Texas was a holdout. This is one of Beto's dirty secrets. He could run his prisons cheaply, not just because he had free labor, but because select prisoners acted as his guards and enforcers. They didn't cost a thing. One just needed to give them some weapons and a few extra privileges. Gillette began to circulate copies of the Ellis Report to state agencies and civil rights groups. She sent one copy to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, where it found its way to a young Harvard-trained staff attorney named William Bennett Turner. Gillette became increasingly convinced that the abuses in the prison, particularly the use of solitary confinement, and the restrictions on prisoners helping each other with legal pleadings, Needed to be challenged in court. Francis Gillette was declaring war on the Texas prison system. Part two of this episode will be uploaded next week. That will detail the rest of the story of how Francis Gillette and Fred Cruz changed the Texas prison system forever. I want to say a huge thank you to Texas Monthly and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. Next episode, I'll be detailing part two of this story. If you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and for you to rate and review my podcast on iTunes. it really does help out. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com.